Good morning. As you notice, Holly and I are teaching together today. I am so grateful to and for her. Uh, and she can tell you. That I'm so grateful to and for you. No. That's what I, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, you handed me um, that one. <laughs> she has um, single-handedly managed the details, the logistics of ensuring Michael Morewood's coming back. Mm -hmm. And he will be here? May 20th, 2020. It is in his last trip to the States. So this is the last time you'll get to hear him unless you go to Australia. Wow. So. Yeah. And, and uh, by the way, if, uh, how many of you, if you did not come to the presentation where Michael Morewood was here, have gone and listened to the rec a video that we have of him on the website? Have you done that? The whole thing is on a video on the Ordinary Life website. If you go to Recorded Talks, and then you'll have to scroll down a couple of times to previous ones um, and listen to him, I think he will be very enlightened. It's very helpful to know these voices are out there. And I would also like to announce that in November... And I will be prepping this in the month of October in talks that I will be giving here. But in November, Matt Russell and I are teaming up to do a series on American heretics. So that will be Matt Russell. Who is the heretic? Who is the heretic. Yes. And I will be, no. Uh, you might remember that some time ago I mentioned to you uh, because somebody mentioned to me uh, uh, this American Life program called American Heretic. I think that was the name of it. A man who is in St. Louis? No. Wherever um, the healing radio preacher was. No idea. Uh, which one? The one who said, unless you give me a million dollars, God is going to kill me. Oh. Huh? Who? Yeah, Oral Roberts. This young African-American man was Oral Roberts' protege. Is he, and uh, Oral Roberts even referred to him as my son. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't remember his name right this minute. But he, um, one night was, well, this was during the, the cleansing that was going on in Rwanda. And one night he was carrying his baby daughter around, trying to help her get to sleep and watching the news. And um, he was one of these evangelical preachers that believed that if you had not accepted Jesus Christ, you were going to hell when you died. And, and he had this revelation and said, those people are not going to hell. They're already in hell. And so he revised his theology and went to this megachurch where he preached as big as Lakewood. Lake, is that it? Mm -hmm. Lakewood? Lake, yeah. And um, preached that. Now, you would think that when people got the news that you're not going to go to hell, they would go, yay. <laughs> but the evangelicals didn't like it, and they fired him. And uh, his church just went away uh, because he was not going to send people to hell. 
And so the, there's a movie about him, and it's on This American Life. I'm sorry I can't d d remember his name. I talked about it in here. But we're doing a, huh? Carlton Pearson. Carlton Pearson. Thank you. And, and so we have got the, the new movie called American Heretics. And we're going to play it two Sundays at 11 o'clock. Uh, in October, divide it into two parts, and then the next two Sundays, Matt and I are going to talk about it together at 11. So, okay. we're, ma'am? Starting when? In November, first Sunday in November. Yeah. So, we'll be doing that. <laughs> I think we started. So, how are you doing? <laughs> How's your practice? <laughs> Great. Okay. They wouldn't lie, would they? I don't think so. Okay. Just to All get right. to heaven, maybe, but okay. I'm not sure. Okay. So you know that you, if you want to, you can sign the sheet back here or a card back here, and you can get the emails um, of the, uh, about the previews and summaries of this class. And so no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So this class today... Um, is something that grew out of last Sunday and grew out of conversations that Holly and I have had about last Sunday. And we can't cover everything today. So next Sunday, I'm going to talk about a question and try to answer a question that ever since I introduced Ilya Delio here, I've gotten in one way or another about how is it possible for you to teach what you teach here? and then go across the plaza and be involved in the worship service. So next Sunday, I'm going to talk about uh, tradition, ritual, myth, and, and more. Next Sunday, we'll devote ourselves to that. But uh, I want to talk, we are going to talk today about how to stop um, suffering as a result of a case of um, confused identity. And I said last week that one of my teaching goals, and I want you to notice the cool transition here. Okay. All right. Turn notice. it Notice. Here we go. It is called healing the divine. That was Isn't awesome. Isn't that cool? Bill. <laughs> so fun that Keynote knows exactly what you need. <laughs> So healing the divide, and I want to talk a little bit about that, and then uh, as we go along, you'll hear Holly talking about how we can also recover our mystical, mystical nature. Healing the divide, we've always been divided, we humans. We come into the world divided. We, um, we develop as humans, and we're not, just because we develop consciousness, we're not the only ones who do some of the things that I'm talking about. But we, we get into groups in order to help us to survive, to give us security. And um, we also do it because we want to learn how to take care of each other, and, and we want to... Uh, develop this ability to work together, to cooperate together. And as we do that, we develop an awareness that there's a huge difference between us and other people. 
In psychology, we call this ob object relations. It has to deal with separation anxiety and how we begin to develop an ego and people get together in groups to do that. Groups develop egos. Groups develop bonding around themselves for safety and security so that we know who's in our group and who's not, who's the in group and who is the out, who is the out group. And it's also in here that we learn about respect and loyalty. So that you can see that in a good in-group would be the military, where people learn to respect authority and to follow the rules and to do things like that. A good in-group um, would be like a, a sports team, unless you saw the Texans last Monday night, and that would be not a good thing. So over a long period of time, these groups became known as tribes. And the Judeo-Christian tradition, and next Sunday I will just say, we are babies on the block when it comes to all of this in religion. If you think about the Hindus and the Muslims and Native Americans and Aboriginal people and others, they are, they've got a much longer history than we do in, in tribal identity. But in this group, we can get blind and we come to think we're right and the other group is wrong. I'm right and, and you're wrong. And as I tried to say last week, this can keep us from developing a kind of moral humility and uh, it can make us go blind. I have some friends who are more conservative than I am by far, way to the right of me. I really respect them because they are, are clear about certain core values that mean so much to them and that they are willing to defend them and to stand up for them. And over a long period of history, they've kind of been the curators and the, and the, the keepers of values of a culture. Now you can argue rightly or wrongly whether those values have made America, that have made America great, have been just and fair and all of that, but they have succeeded in helping some in-groups really establish an identity that, that propels them forward. I have other friends who are so far to the left, they make me look conservative. I remember when we were remodeling this building and, and this class had to move out and had no place to go, I said to um, Dr. Jim Bankson, well, maybe it's just time for me to retire. And he said, you can't do that. I need you here. You make me look conservative. <laughs> so some of you remember, I've re I referred to John Dominic Crossan and, and uh, keep a slide on his, of his, on the announcement slide every Sunday about uh, biblical interpretation. Crossan gave a talk one time and he was signing books afterwards and of, that he had written for people who had bought the books. And this guy came up to him and said, my pastor told me not to come and listen to you because he said that you are to the left of Marcus Borg. <laughs> Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan were good friends and they co-authored a couple of books together. And uh, Crossan said to this man, give my regards to your pastor and tell him that's the good news. The bad news is that both Borg and I are to the right of Jesus. 
okay? And if your pastor reads Psalm 110, you will find, I'm sure you all know that song. You will find that Jesus is to the right of God when it comes to justice. So it's all a matter of perspective. Every viewpoint is a point from a view. So I think one of the greatest uh, fictions that we have created, particularly in religious tribes, is that God's on our side. That we have the truth about God, that we know God's will, we know God's way, we understand what God says, and everybody else is, is wrong. Those on the right speak for institutions. They want order, even if it comes at the cost of some justice. Okay? Those on the left, um, they, they generally speak for the weak and the oppressed, and they want change and justice, even if it means chaos. So those are positives and negatives of both right and, and left. I think the great insight from the right is that order is really hard to achieve, and, and um, it's easy to lose. And both the right and the left, and we'll talk about this when we get to tradition next Sunday, um, both the right and the left have, have something to offer. There is a Zen master whose name I cannot pronounce who says, the perfect way is only difficult for those who pick and choose. Do not like, do not dislike, all will, be, will then be clear. Make a hairbreadth difference and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against. The struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. But here's the problem. Our minds were created to function dualistically. And they also, as I say, this, this dualistic mindset can blind us to the truth and that blindness can keep us from cultivating this moral humility that I'm talking about. So I think we need to work at cultivating two things and, and uh, those are a passionate commitment to building a better world and a passionate commitment to the truth. Mm -hmm. And this is a little thing I got off the internet. Yeah. So nature is a chaotic system. It thrives in chaos and order. It's, that's not, it's a non-dual idea. And it's interesting that you bring up truth because of course the next question is, what is truth and whose truth are you talking about? Is there any such thing as a capital T truth? But here's what I think. I think when we observe nature, it reveals truths to us. And it reveals truths to us both about the natural world and about ourselves. Here's an example. Well, I'll get to the example. But I first want to talk about the history of dualism a little bit. Um, what helped to deepen the divide? We've heard of Rene Descartes, or some of us have, who said, I think, therefore I am. He envisioned a mind separate from the body. He envisioned that the mind could live independently from the body and live forever. And he thought he could prove this theory with an imaginary experiment he called the floating man. I won't go into that right now. There's still a lot of debate about what constitutes something as being alive. But systems theory proposes that it's the interplay of all the parts to affect the metabolic function of the whole, 
that constitutes life. The rock, for example, is not alive, but it's integral to the living system of the planet. The brain is not alive by itself, but it's integral to the living system of the body. Descartes did not invent dualism, but he, his, he really sealed something that modernity took and ran with, and it set us on this course of dualistic thinking, a dualistic nature. I'm a little relieved that this time around it was a man, not a woman, <laughs> who created separation. You know, Eve got crap for that for millennia, for separating <laughs> us from God. <laughs> Talk about mistaken identity. <laughs> um, I love, well, I put in this Descartes cartoon with Calvin and Hobbes. He says, come on, Calvin, get up or you'll be late for school. Today my spirit is going to school while my body stays in bed. <laughs> Now my spirit is in bed after he gets kicked out. <laughs> it didn't work. My finger didn't tap. There you go. There we go. Um, I love this painting. I just found it, actually, as I was kind of researching things. But it's, look at all the projection going on here. God's pointing at Adam. Adam's pointing at Eve. Eve's pointing at the snake. They're like, it was him. It was him. It was him. Um, it was painted in 1626 at the same time that Descartes was alive. So at the, this time, this dualism was heavy in our art and in our thinking. And I want to think about the apple that Eve ate for a second. I think there's an alternative narrative here. The apple comes from a seed. The seed always holds the possibility for the apple. And in this way, it represents the entire universe. It requires rain, water, air to grow. The part is contained in the whole. And the whole reveals that interconnectivity of nature and of the individual parts. Rumi wrote in a poem, the bird song is contained in the egg. That's the same principle. In eating the apple, perhaps Eve woke up to the entire universe within, and men just couldn't handle it. So they just kept pointing at her and saying, it's your fault, lady. <laughs> Um, I've so, shown some of these pictures before. The, look at how nature mirrors itself in us. The, uh, the top picture is a picture of brain synapses firing. The bottom is a, newborn, is a constellation being born. In this picture on the, uh, my right, your left, uh, is a newborn star. And on the next picture is a human cell. So we are, we are in parallel with nature. If we were keeping with Descartes' dictum, our egoic identity can become so important that we differentiate, separate, and isolate. But that's not actually our natural continuum. What, what Descartes' ideology points at, that's yours, is, a, is indeed dualism is part of conscious evolution. It's necessary for us to know our identity. It's necessary to know who we are. It's just not where it's intended to stop. Differentiation turns towards complexity, and complexity creates greater unity. The best example of that is your body. Each individual organ, each individual cell in your body has a purpose, but they cannot function without the whole. This continuum of existence of energy becoming matter, so the form of the seed becomes the apple. It integrates with the body that ingests it. 
Energy, matter, and form are entangled, and as our mutual love, Ilya Delio, mm -hmm. would say, they are imbued with one another. So in nature, we have this idea of a vacuum. But what happens in the vacuum? Neutrinos start to appear. A vacuum cannot stay empty. So the basis of atoms, of future stars, the basis of us begin to appear in a vacuum. It, nature loves to create. It's programmed this way. It literally cannot help but commune. At the most basic level, atoms are attracted to other atoms to create molecules. The condition of being alive, the condition, I think, why we form tribes, is because we seek communion. We seek togetherness. The scientist Brian Goodwin calls this property of emergence maximum grace. This is a physics term, maximum grace. That's wonderful. Yeah, beautiful. How we view ourselves, of course, in relation to this natural world as part of this emergence, I think tells us a lot. So do we view ourselves as part of as separate from, as watchers, or as integral to. This says a lot about how we view our relationship to everybody. The thing that makes me a little bit squeamish about talking about unity in spaces like this, um, I think it's something we all want. But I think saying, oh, let's, we just want unity. Let's just all get along. It's a bit of a spiritual bypass. Because we are part of nature, we do want unity. We do want communion. Most of us want to get on board with that idea. Without knowing, of course, the particularities of each individual's suffering or each individual's struggle for aliveness, I, I look at our group and I think most of us have benefited from collective freedom and from systems that work for us. When I while I fundamentally believe in an underlying unity of nature, of everything, it's not always what gets acted out in human form. We know this. Even the church perpetuates ideas of God and Jesus as being white and male and American. So essentially saying <laughs> that godliness is whiteness, right? My ancestors were adventurers and they were also colonizers. Some of them were farmers and growers and some of them were slave owners. Some of them don't like the ongoing struggle for justice because they think, why can't we just be done with that? because it doesn't affect them, right? They might say, it's not, that's not exactly a unifying statement, to say, let's just get on with it, right? If both the adventurer and domination weren't in my ancestral reality, and let's say slavery and resistance were part of Josh's, my husband's, then if we had never questioned that division, we might never have met. Again, disunity longs for unity. We are bent towards communion. This is the pattern of the universe in this way. So differentiation leads to more communion. The pattern of the universe is a love story, if we think of it that way. I think part of the spiritual injustice process is looking at how we've participated in, benefited from, inherited, or created systems that continue division, that continue to divide us. It's hard work but I don't think it's impossible work for us to look at that. To say we believe in unity is not enough because unity is actually not something to believe in. It already is. It is the state of being. What we do is we choose whether or not to participate in it. That's our conscious choice. 
So did you read that article I sent you about mm -hmm. I'm not, not a racist? <laughs> what did you think? I thought it was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I read uh, just in the most recent issue of Spiritual Directing magazine called Presence, mm -hmm. an article on diversity that it just exploded my thinking about diversity. We think it's a simple matter. Yeah. The diversity that we are is so, uh, so complex, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What you said, though, um, it, it takes me back to psychology. Um, I think that the things that are needed for change, one of the things that's needed for change is insight. Mm -hmm. And we get that from psychology. You mean I'm not my ego? Right. No, and you're not. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, no. I thought of, <laughs> I knew that. You're your id. Kidding. Go, go, go ahead. <laughs> you know, Descartes believed that, that because he thought he existed, mm -hmm. you knew that, mm -hmm. right? So he goes in the bar and says, the bartender says, you want a martini? And he said, I think not. And he disappeared. What? <laughs> Just like that. Anyway. So what, seriously, what you, what you said makes me realize that the establishment of an ego, whether individually or tribally, is essential for survival. But the ego is like a hammer. We use it to build a house. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do that, we suffer from this mistaken identity. Get it? We suffer when we think that we're separate. And as Holly said, we're not separate. We just think we are. And our task spiritually is to participate in what is. That's the goal. That's the heart of spiritual practice, is to participate in what is. And that's part of the agenda, too. As you know, I am really interested in word origin. You know, where we get the terms right and left? Somebody's conservative, they're on the right, and somebody is liberal, they're on the left. You know where that comes from? You're about to find out. <laughs> so in, in, um, in Europe, before the French Revolution, there was an, a system known as the estate system. There were three estates. Actually, there were four, but the three estates that were talked about. The king, then there were uh, the clergy and the nobles, and then there were the peasants. And, and these groups were known in order as the first estate, the second estate, and the third estate. And right after the revolution, um, when members of the National Assembly divided into groups, the supporters of the king sat on the president's right. And the supporters of the revolution set on the king, president's left. So that those on the right became known as the party of order. And those on the left became known as um, the party of movement. And for shorthand, the right became conservative and the left became liberal. And I want you to notice that in the second estate, the nobles and the clergy were together on the right. You gotta wonder, what in the world was the church doing on the right when all of the church's teaching is a revolution? It's just the truth. 
the two most oversought um, realities about Jesus are one that he was a Jew. He was a mystical Jew. That's the first thing that most Christians are stunned by. <laughs> Marcus Borg gave a talk, and afterwards this woman came up to him and said, are you sure? And he said, about what? And he said, are you sure Jesus was a Jew? Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and the woman said, well, surely his mother wasn't. <laughs> Jesus was a Jew, and that's most often overlooked. And the second most overlooked aspect of Jesus was his political stance. He was, a, he was against the system. So um, I got a cartoon, in, while I was doing this research, a cartoon where the, fir, the, the first and second estates are being carried on the back of the third. Boy, aren't you glad that's over? Oh, right, yeah. The, being on the backs of the poor. And, yeah, and we, nobody profits we don't do that anymore. The, the yeah. back of the poor. <laughs> so I would just say one other thing, and, 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 and then I'll quit about this. You know, last week I mentioned to you the advances in technology and how we have all of these devices, these things, that will now fit in this. I would imagine that most people in this room have a smartphone. You have one. Yep. You have, most people in this room have a smartphone, certainly a cell phone. I doubt many people have a cell phone. Most people have smartphones. Right? And we, we begin to think, oh, my gosh, everybody must have one of these. Here's a fact. There are now more cell phones on the planet than there are people. Look it up on the Google. More, sure. And Google's smarter than us because it's part of the smartphone, so it knows the answer, right? Well, I didn't want yes. to. I didn't think about it that yeah. way. So. <laughs> there are more cell phones than there are toilets. So we fall into the illusion of thinking everybody's got one. Less than thirty-three percent of the population of the planet have a cell phone. But because we don't live associated with the demographic of people who don't have cell phones, we tend to forget about those, right? Um, I ran across this. Uh, I was told by one of you who are here, and I don't have permission to tell you who, that um, last year in Harris County, we're the top, one of the top three counties in the United States for abused, abandoned, and severely neglected children. Last year, 2018, there were 5,600 cases reported to the Department of Family Protective Services. That's just last year. But we're not, most of us are not associated with a demographic, so we don't think, oh, well, that's a reality out there. 40,000 children, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, 40,000 children die every day on this planet of starvation. But we don't think about that because we're not frequently in, in that uh, population. There are 20,000 prostitutes under the age of 12 in Manila. Vast majority of people in human history have been poor. 
The middle class is a fabrication from the 18th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a new. It's, it's, it, I understand that it's going out of existence, and that the 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 majority of wealth is being concentrated in a smaller and smaller percentage, mm-hmm. and and. Um, that's where we are. I'm not idealizing any, any of that. But um, the majority of poor in history, the majority of people in, in, in history have been poor. But who writes the laws? Who enforces the laws? Who benefits from people who break the law and have to be incarcerated? We may say something about this next, next week about how it was the wealthy Christian group in Rome that won out all over all the other Christian groups when Constantine said, you guys got to get your act together and agree on something. Just like now, the people who had the most money and power said this is the way things are going to be. That's why it's called the Roman Catholic Church. The power is concentrated in Rome. And as you'll see, those that didn't have the power, they got marginalized and pushed not to the side, not off the table, they got banished or killed. Just a Christian thing to do. Can you talk about acorns? Do you want me to do that? Yeah, I thought you would. Okay. So I know that um, some of you who are in, how many of you are in the Centering Prayer Group in here? Right. Good, goodly number of people. So you you know this this book by Cynthia Bergeau. I met, met Cynthia Bergeau on one of um, our trips to hear uh, Richard Rohr. And um, so I know that some of you have read this book. I, I really recommend this book. It's a, if you want a book to read in your daily spiritual practice to open up the head part, three parts of spiritual practice: head part, heart part, hand part. So this is this would be a good thing from um, the Christian perspective, because she covers a lot of stuff about mysticism and and practice in here as well. And in this book, she tells a story, which she did not invent. She got it from uh, Jacob Jacob uh, uh, Needle, Needleman, who is a man that I had to read in graduate school. Uh, he's written uh, many, many books. He's a philosopher. And he's dry, very smart. I don't necessarily recommend you to read him. Um, but there's a story that he has in there, it, it, kind of an idea that, that Cynthia Bergeau capitalizes on that I want to read to you. Because it is about our mistaken identity and, and how we... Maybe it'll raise our awareness about how we begin to take steps away from our true identity and think we are our ego. So I'm going to read it to you the way Bourgeau tells it. Once upon a time in a not-so-far-away land, there was a kingdom of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand oak tree. Since the citizens of this kingdom were modern, fully westernized, They went about their business with purposeful energy. And since they were midlife baby boomer acorns, they engaged in a lot of self-help courses. 
There were seminars called Getting All You Can Out of Your Shell. There were woundedness and recovery groups for acorns who'd been bruised in their original fall from the tree. There were spas for oiling and polishing those shells and various acornopathy <laughs> therapies to enhance longevity and well-being. One day, in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a naughty little stranger, apparently dropped out of the blue by a passing bird. He, he, he was scraped and dirty, making an immediate negative impression on his fellow acorns. And crouched beneath the oak tree, he stammered out a wild tale. Pointing upward at the tree, he said, We are that. Delusional thinking, obviously, the other acorns concluded. But one of them continued to engage him in conversation. So tell us, how would we become that tree? Well, he said, pointing downward, it has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open the shell. Insane, they responded. <laughs> totally morbid. Why, why, then we wouldn't be acorns anymore. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good one. Hey, Bill, that was in the Hollis book, too. Huh. Was it? I don't remember. It's in the Examine Life book? Yes, it is. Huh. I should read that book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just recommend it to others. <laughs> I've read that book three times. I don't remember that. I've been starting again in the morning. Yes. We're going to go look for that page. Um, anyways, um, so the stories like this um, it, uh, might fit into what we might call a compact cosmology. And one of the beautiful things about early forms of spirituality is that individual identity was not separate from group or natural identity. Ancient spiritual texts like the Tao Te Ching, the Bhagavad Gita, and Sufi poetry, they don't separate the part from the whole, the human from the divine or the human from the natural world. There were, of course, wrong beliefs, one of which that if we pray, the sun will come up, and if we don't pray, the sun won't come up. Um, or if the gods are angry, angry, I need to throw a virgin at the volcano to appease them. These were wrong beliefs. Nevertheless, there was no separation between, between humans and divine, humans and nature. The Dreamtime stories of the aboriginals in Australia integrate past, present, and future realms. They call this integration every win. I like that word, mm. every win. Yeah. And tell... Uh, about the great spirits that formed the earth from this barren land. The rainbow serpent, for example, came from beneath the ground and created huge ridges, mountains, and gorges as it pushed upward. So it pushes up from under the ground. And it's understood to be of immense proportions. And the way it stays alive is that it inhabits permanent deep water holes, jumping from one water hole to the next. And as it jumps from one water hole to the next, rainbows appear. So that's an integrated cosmology, right? A compact cosmology. It shows, as it shows itself in the form of a rainbow, it's considered to be the creator of everything and also the destroyer of everything. So again, holding both chaos and order in, in tandem. Myths like this do help us. You're going to talk more about myths next week, but they help us grasp our non-dual state and explain the non-dual state of nature. So 
one of the questions that I am asking a lot in my program is what can an integral cosmology look like? What does a modern cosmology look like? It's a paradigm we are currently creating. If we're up to the challenge, we need to incorporate myths and ritual. They aren't the whole truth, but they can orient us toward it. I think we also need to incorporate evolution, non-dual teachings. You know anything about that? Okay. We'll get to someone else then. Um, a non-hierarchical <laughs> non image of God and an integration of masculine and feminine. So we need to take this stance that nothing and no one is excluded because it can be hard to look at our human systems and at our human selves to understand how we include Nature is often a good example. Do we have time to show this video? It's 10.30. Let's do. Okay. Um, this is a three-minute video that shows do what Do we need happens. to get out of the way? Um, I don't think so. Okay, we can. Um, yes, we do. Um, it's, uh, it just shows what happens in nature when something is excluded. Do okay, you can tell us about it. So the idea, and I'll include this in a... Um, ah, it's because your battery's low. Um, I'll include this in, um, in the link to the summary... But that, that's right. But the, but the principle is that wolves were taken out of Yellowstone because they were killing other animals. And when the wolves were taken out of Yellowstone, the entire topography changed. Rivers widened. Birds disappeared. Rabbits became too plentiful. Deer became too plentiful. The entire ecosystem changed, all because the wolf was excluded. At some point in the 90s, they began to reintegrate the wolf into Yellowstone. And as that happened, it righted itself. The system began to work again. The rivers flowed in a more contained way. Wildflowers grew. Rabbits came and were eaten. And so they were more in control. Deer population went down. And the, what happens when the deer population went up was the grasses disappeared. So all of these things just in tandem, needed to work, needed to happen, and needed to be present. Our human systems are the same. So again, the question is, what is our wolf? What are we excluding that is necessary to the whole, that is necessary to keep in balance this system of human ecology, so to speak? So when I think about this question, the truth is that but we, you know, as people, we often exclude the poor, immigrants, sometimes non-whites in this context, non-Christians, non-heterosexuals. Who are we excluding that keep us from embracing this integral cosmology, our connection to the whole? It is a question of identity. We would never ask an elephant to be anything other than an elephant. We would never ask a bird not to fly. We would never ask the acorn to become an elm tree, right? So what is it in us? What is the human sort of acorn inside of us that needs to be expressed? What do we need to be to be fully human? Back to the example of the sun, we are actually sun followers. This picture is a plant leaning toward the light. If you've ever watched a plant in your garden as it follows the sun, right? The sun doesn't actually rise or set. There's no such thing. It doesn't, we, we're, we're moving around it, right? We also are light seekers. We also are sun followers. 
So even though we now know the sun does not do, that it doesn't need our intervention to do what it does, to me that's no less wondrous. That it just is, and we lean towards it. We lean towards the light. We cannot stay alive without that light, without chasing the light, so to speak. In France and yeah. Spain, one of the cash crops is sunflowers. Mm -hmm. So you can drive down the highway and see these acres mm -hmm. and acres of sunflowers mm -hmm. all in the same direction, all mm -hmm. seeking the it's sunlight. Just yeah, we it's do just, that too. We do. We would not. We, we would not be able to stay alive without the sun. Oh, it doesn't need us to pray to it to come up, but <laughs> but we need it, right? right? This this like integration of sort of what is how the natural world is of science <laughs> and mysticism mm -hmm. is 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 absolutely the way mm -hmm. of the universe. And and we have this ego that um, and there's not a person in this room that hasn't said this, mm -hmm. including you and me. When some I'm perfect. Well, I know that. Ask Josh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, anyway, know, what do we all that, say? That, that, that's a big thing in Methodism. Methodist clergy <laughs> on ordination have to stand in front of the bishop and yeah. say, I am going on to perfection. Oh. No pressure. <laughs> And, and here's the problem is if you claim to have achieved it, you haven't. Because perfect people wouldn't say that. I right. know me, except, except you. Except me, yeah. yeah. I have permission. Except you yes. for that. <laughs> but we, we, we have this ego that thinks that we are so powerful so that when some tragedy befalls us, and you've all done it, we say, what did I do to deserve this? As if there is this reward and punishment out there, rather than what is, is what it is. Now, we influence things, and we participate in creating certain circumstances and reactions, but we don't run the show. Mm -mm. We, we have this confused identity. You know, and maybe we'll get, we, we didn't talk about this, but maybe we'll get into this at another time. What, what we are suggesting and what, what I try to do is in spiritual work, you have to go to a place where you haven't been, where you're not familiar going. And let's just suppose that we all got on a plane this afternoon individually we, were, we didn't have each other, and we ended up in Sweden. The first thing we would do when we got off the plane would be look for some bilingual signs, you know, or a tourist office, or something that would tell us where we were. And if we couldn't find that, our anxiety would begin to go up. So then we'd look for symbols. I have an international travels thing that I've take with me on trips where I don't speak the language and you can open it up and point to all sorts of things. And, and um, we were in Greece one time and needing to mail some mail, so I pointed to the post office and somebody helpfully directed us to the library. So it did not, even, <laughs> even that doesn't always work, you know? But if there were no symbols and you were in another country, you would, your anxiety would go really up. 
And what you would do to interpret what you saw would be to use patterns from your past. Mm -hmm. So that's one indication of how strong family of origin stuff can be. And, and the lessons that we absorbed when we were children that we have not become aware of mm -hmm. and freed ourselves from in, in some way. I'm not saying that's not useful, but I'm just saying that's not who we are. Let's see. Are we done? Yeah. I think you have to go to work. I'm not going. <laughs> so, uh, Doug, you're up. <laughs> you can act like your dad. You can go do it. <laughs> uh, I have this quote that, that, that I haven't found a place to use except right this minute. It's from Shakespeare in Twelfth Night, where he says, There are no prisons more confining than those we do not know we are in. Mm -hmm. So what's required for change is insight. And Holly and I have talked about this. Uh, what day of the week is this? Sunday. So today I believe that all of this is in one category. We need insight to change. We need moral qualities. We need courage. We need persistence. And we need endurance. Um, those are the things, patience and, and persistence in spiritual practice. You can't, you're not off the hook by saying, well, I tried it and it didn't work. Just do it. And you do it not to get something out of it, but you do it for doing's sake. So we're going we're gonna to end um, with, with this quote from Einstein. The most beautiful and most profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sore of all true science. The person to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. That deeply emotional conviction of the presence of a superior reasoning power, which is revealed in the incomprehensible universe, forms my idea of God. Now, that's Albert Einstein, not one of the bagel boys. Okay. I thought that was funny. That was funny, but I only just got it. It took a minute to sink in. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's fun doing this with you. Yeah, it's fun with you, too. Thanks. So thank you all, no matter... Where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.